Welcome to episode 39 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Now, we've got a fantastic lineup today, but we wanted to start with a man I'm absolutely certain every one of our listeners will have heard of. Anyone who's been to opera at Wembley Arena, a symphony concert at the Barbican, or ballet or carols by candlelight at the Royal Albert Hall will have noticed they're usually presented by one Raymond Gubby. He's the legendary impresario who's brought classical music to more people in the UK than anyone else. And now he's just published his autobiography. It's called Lowering the Tone and Raising the Roof and is an account of the last half century or so in which Raymond has worked with some of our greatest performers and transformed the UK's musical scene. Yes, and this is so hot off the press that we haven't even had a chance to read it yet. But we thought we'd get him on before anyone else muscled in and we're delighted to say he's with us today. Good morning, Raymond. Good, good morning and thank you for that lovely build-up. I don't know whether I quite live up to that, but I'll do my best. <laughs> it's just going to get better, Raymond. We haven't had time to read your book yet, so you're going to have to tell us what's in it. But it does contain the inside story of you being the first person to present opera at the Wembley Arena when you staged Turandot for 60,000 people. Was that when things really took off? Uh, well, that was with the Royal Opera. Um, the first time they'd come out of the Opera House to do anything like that. And uh, I was very thrilled to be able to do it. And it was a great success. The press actually was very good. Um, but at the end of the whole thing, I mean, it did lose rather a lot of money. But in the Covent Garden's annual report, uh, the chairman never even mentioned it. So I think that sort of said something about Covent Garden <laughs> at the time. Uh, there we are. But it was um, a lovely opportunity, and I'm very glad to have had it. Well, what's so great about talking to you, Raymond, is that over the years, like so many people, I've been to so many Raymond Gubby Presents concerts. So it's absolutely fascinating to be getting to know the person behind the billing, as it were. Now, obviously, where you're biggest fans on this podcast as we love everyone trying to bring art to more people but the idea of bringing classical music as, as you're saying to the masses has not always been greeted with great enthusiasm in fact obviously the title of your autobiography lowering the tone and raising the roof slightly says it all so i'm thinking about the barbican now where the senior people there were initially openly quite hostile and snobby not quite true actually um, because henry wrong the the original director actually was very enthusiastic Enthusiastic. But what seemed to be happening was that I came in with uh, just a few concerts to begin with in Easter 1982, wasn't it? And uh, they sold out and I added more concerts and suddenly they were opening the diary to me. And in 1983, uh, when it was tough over there, I did 135 performances, not just music, but I did a show about cricket with Brian Johnson, all kinds of things, uh, film and lunchtime concerts which sold out. And suddenly, you know, the Barbican was seen to be successful because I was getting these mass audiences. So the Barbican themselves were, were very enthusiastic, as was the city. But the uh, LSO at the time, uh, who were the resident orchestra, were not quite so happy uh, because they were struggling because they put Harold in Italy on five times in a week um, in, a, in, a, in a, um, a, a, a Tippet and a Berlioz festival. Um, and uh, so, you know, it was quite difficult to get something like that off the ground. I mean, wonderful as it was, it, they were repeating things rather too often and uh, it took them a while to find their feet. So what got you started in this business, Raymond? 
Well, I sort of drifted in and I never drifted out. And my mother always hoped I'd get a proper job one day. But somehow I stuck with this and I've done it all my life. I should say I'm sort of retired now. I sold my company, but uh, I'm lucky to have lived through a golden age uh, when uh, the arts were um, and, and, and live performances were supported when started in the mid 60s when Harold Wilson appointed Jenny Lee as the arts minister and she encouraged all the local authorities to spend the what was the old sixpenny rate in old money on supporting performances and, and, and entertainment and arts and goodness knows what else. And there was a, a lot of new venues being built, small venues, and I could take my little concerts in there. And, and they did very well. And that's how the whole thing started. It literally, you know, I remember standing on Golders Green Station waiting for the train after I'd started all this, thinking, well, maybe I'll get six months work out of this. And sort of 50-something years later, I was still doing it. <laughs> so you've worked with absolutely everyone. You've worked with Tommy Cooper. You've worked with Rudolf Nureyev. You've worked with the Beatles. You've worked with Pavarotti. Well, I didn't, I, I, I have to sort of butt in. I didn't work with all those people. You're, I, I saw the Beatles when I was with Russian Folk Dance Company when I was 18, taking them around the country for Victor Hochhauser. And we were at the Liverpool Empire. and They were there on the Sunday and we were in on the Monday. So we got to see them. And Tommy Cooper, I saw in the Royal Variety Show when I took the same uh, group of Russians there for in the middle of a tour. Uh, Nureyev was uh, a very sad um, uh, situation. He came to see this company uh, about two years after he defected. He came to the uh, to the um, Bristol Hippodrome uh, with Margot Fontaine's secretary, and I was asked to look after them. It was a Saturday matinee, and he, he insisted on coming backstage afterwards, and all the company turned their back on him, and he, they wouldn't engage him in conversation because they were under the commissars and the, the apparatchniks, and they didn't dare to. I think a lot of them would have loved to have spoken to him uh, and engaged with him. So he went out of the stage door very sad and very unhappy, but I remember that very well. How did it come about that you um, worked with the Soviet Union? Well, I went to work for when I was 18 for... Uh, Victor Hochhauser, who was a legendary uh, producer and promoter of uh, uh, concerts, but also of, of artists from the then Soviet Union. So I got uh, working with them straight away. I, I, I uh, started with this Moisev uh, folk dance company at the Albert Hall. Uh, we were there for three weeks at the end of the proms in 1964 and then went on tour with them. And I stayed with Hochhauser as I say, uh, 10 months, 28 days and 12 hours. But I learned an awful lot in that time. Later on, I, when I was working on my own, I worked a lot with um, Soviet artists and working with them was an absolute joy because they're great, talented artists. But the system was, uh, was something else. Well, your book's absolutely ram-packed with um, anecdotes. And as we haven't had a chance to read it, I'm, I'm going to nick one of Ed's <laughs> questions now. Um, have, have you got a, a, a favourite? Well, I, I do remember uh, at the, um, the South Bank, the uh, director, um, after the uh, GLC was abolished, and I got lots of anecdotes about that, but when the GLC was ab abolished, Nick, Nick Snowman was appointed the um, artistic director, and he was, uh, I know, I've known Nick a, a long time, but he was a bit snobby about what I was doing and so on, and was always highly critical, but never came to see anything. And one day he came, <laughs> it was before the, the lottery, he came with a lot of MPs, London MPs, uh, to one of our Christmas concerts, carol concerts. It was totally alien to see him there. 
and they, it was clear that he was lobbying for support for the hall. So I said to the conductor in the interval, I said, we're very honoured today to have Nick Snowman here. And not only that, but it's his birthday. So would you mind at the start of the second half singing him happy birthday, announcing it, singing happy birthday, which he did. And he went, and all these MPs, I could see Snowman throwing his arms up and all these MPs were slapping him on the back and so on. And he just had to sort of grin and bear it. Uh, but of course, it, uh, uh, it wasn't actually his birthday, but only he and I knew that, you see. So yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I enjoyed that. That was fun. That and did you win him over? Um, <laughs> no, I made it worse later on when I said that they were going to do the um, South American festival again the following year that they'd had. Although this time they were going to fly the audience to South America because it was cheaper. And he didn't, uh, it didn't take very kindly to that. But we, there we are. We still get on, I'm sure. <laughs> We'd love to know about the time that Princess Diana was filmed and photographed in the Royal Albert Hall's Royal Box at a Swan Lake rehearsal. At the time, she was patron of the English National Ballet, and it caused a bit of a furore. Uh, yes, I mean, she was so supportive of the ballet, and uh, genuinely so. You know, normally royal patrons are, uh, they don't get that involved. She certainly did, and she came along when, when uh, Derek Dean created Swan Lake for the first time in the Albert Hall, um, she came along to the dress rehearsal, or before the dress rehearsal rather, to be photographed with all the swans for the times. And uh, it was a fantastic photo. You still see it around. And at the, the end of that, she said, could I stay and watch the rehearsal? And everybody said, well, of course, it's lovely, you know. Um, thank you very much. And, and, and so she, she sat through the rehearsal and... Of course, the press got to know, got to hear about this, and ITV, ITN came along uh, um, and, and were very cheeky and said, could they do an, uh, an interview with her at the end of the rehearsal? And she agreed, and she said, yes, of course. And they said, where can we do it? And she pointed up to the Royal Box, and she said, well, we should do it there. So, <laughs> so everybody ran around, they all unlocked the Royal Box, and she went up there. But, of course, um, the protocol demanded that, it, you know, it's, it's in the in the Queen's keeping, and uh, she was not entitled to be there. And the next day, I gather, there was quite a, a, a stern message from the palace to the hall saying this should not have happened. But uh, for us, with the ballet, um, it made a wonderful news story. Uh, the photo in the paper in the Times the next day mocked up the rest of the, the few seats that were left. So she really gave us a tremendous boost. And I've met a few royals, obviously, um, as one does when, in, in, in this business. And she was, dare I say it, the, by far the most wonderful and the, the, the really keen to see that, uh, that things were, were going well. She wanted people to know she was enjoying it. And with the ballet, where she was the patron, she really did a, an incredible amount of good work. Oh, I'm just wondering, I swear, just, just quickly about the Albert Hall, because there's been so much gloom about it during lockdown. I wonder what you feel about it, its future. I think its future is assured. It's a great national institution. It's a very odd institution in that it has private members as well who own seats. And that's always a source of contention. Um, but I see that the, the government have given them through the Cultural Recovery Fund uh, £20 million uh, a loan on uh, low interest, not that they don't have to start repaying it for four years. So I think that's a, a sure way of a sure sign that uh, they will survive, and they must survive because it's uh, it, it's the nation's village hall, as somebody called it. It's the most wonderful <laughs> place, and it's such a flexible building. Uh, you can do things in different ways there. It, it's really great that we we have it, and it should be 
absolutely preserved and the people that are running it are they're great uh, craig uh, hassel who runs it is a good friend of mine he used to work for me and uh, I, I admire very much the way that he's seeing uh, his way through this in, in getting everyone geared up and wanting to open as soon as they can and it's still as i talk very uncertain we're talking about you know they can open now for socially distanced performances with a certain with a maximum capacity that i don't think that works for them um, will they be open fully in the middle of July? Who knows as we speak, but I hope and pray that they will. So, I mean, Raymond, you got the CBE 20 years ago and you're an honorary fellow of the Royal Academy of Music and Trinity Music. But 20 years ago, you also applied to be the chief executive of the Royal Opera House and the establishment yes, yes. reacted with yes. utter horror. <laughs> I mean, I think what, what I want to get to as we sort of wind this up or, or, uh, is... Uh, you know, you have, as we've said in this podcast, brought classical music to the masses, and yet you've always been sort of treated like an outsider. I mean, has it been frustrating to kind of engage <laughs> with the subsidised performing arts who tend to have an attitude of, you know, it's a privilege for you to be let through, anyone to be let through the doors to watch what they're putting on? Well, as opposed to you, who the... make th you make things informal and relaxed, which is why people want to come and watch. Uh, well, you, you, you know, Ed, it's, it's, we're all in the same business. And when we get together with artists, performers, whatever, there's a great uh, feeling of uh, friendship and, and comradeship. Uh, there are, of course, uh, arts managements and so on that are subsidized, uh, that take a, a sort of proprietorial interest and don't like interlopers. And, uh, you know, I realized years ago I was um, upsetting them. And I'm pleased to say um, I probably still do. So I think I probably succeeded in what I set out to do, which is enjoying myself doing something I love doing. It was never about money. Uh, it was about putting on performances that I enjoyed and that people came to see and enjoyed. The fact that I made money out of it, well, that's great. That was a bonus. I do think that I lived through the glory days, the opening of the Barbican, uh, the, the wonderful time at the Albert Hall with um, opera and ballet and big spectaculars. Those were things that uh, I, I really enjoyed. Now it's up to the next generation to discover what the way forward is. I, I've, I've had an absolute ball. It's been brilliant to have you on, Raymond, and you sound in very rude health. So I hope, <laughs> well, I hope that your autobiography will sell out like hotcakes. And, well, uh, that's very kind. That's good very luck kind. to what you do in the future, because I know you won't really retire. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Lovely talking to you and wish everyone well and stay safe. Just at the foot of the South Downs in West Sussex is Parham House, a beautiful Elizabethan mansion that was derelict until it was bought by Clive and Alicia Pearson in 1922. With Victor Heal as architect, the Pearson spent the next two decades lovingly restoring the house and filling it with a carefully chosen collection of furniture, paintings and textiles, including one of the most important collections of 17th century embroidery in the country. Now, the gallerist, art dealer and curator Adrian Sassoon has interspersed the house's collection with contemporary ceramics and crafted pieces. Adrian Sassoon is an undisputed expert in ceramics and 18th century French porcelain and represents some of the world's finest makers like Junko Mori, Takahiro Kondu, Kate Malone and Hitomi Hosono. Adrian Sassoon in situ at Parham will open in June till the end of August and Adrian is here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning. 
Good morning, Adrian, and it's wonderful to have you on. I'm a great fan of Kate Malone and Junko Mori, and I was lucky enough to learn about Hitomi Hasona and write about her when she created that exquisite collection she did for Wedgwood. Now, I've seen some wonderful photographs of how you've placed this work alongside the antiques, but our listeners probably haven't. So tell us what we're going to see at Parham. Well, um, in this Elizabethan house, which has been preserved in a very Elizabethan manner, you don't see modernity in the rooms of the house. We've just inserted contemporary works of art, recently made things, made mainly during the pandemic year, and we haven't uh, redecorated the rooms. We haven't taken paintings off the wall or moved the furniture. We've just maybe put one of our new sculptures where there was a vase of flowers. We have integrated into the rooms like a collector would a collection, and so it forms an exhibition which will be uh, visible when the house does reopen um, from late June to late August. And we've photographed it, we've filmed it, we've documented it in case people couldn't visit. And we're going to show how contemporary works of art fit in, if you're a collector, in an environment that you choose. And the family, the lovely Emma and James Barnard, who live in the house, have been so kind and sort of stood back as we invaded rooms and even um, large objects outside the house and placed some pieces in the greenhouses. We've just invaded, but we haven't altered anything. We've settled things how one of the family that lives there might choose to do. And we were very particular about that, not changing the character of the house. Yes, I know James and Emma Barnard, and strangely, I've never been invited to Parham, despite knowing James since I was about 10. So if they're listening to this, obviously... Uh, stiffy, I hope, will be on its way. But uh, it's very more, comfortable. more, <laughs> don't rub it in, Adrian. <laughs> um, They're very well known for very remarkable historic loo paper there, although they prefer you not to use it. They have a supply of sort of early 20th century things in the house that are quite surprising. So they have an archive of early 20th century loo rolls. Mm. <laughs> and all sorts of other things. Um, all the best technology of the 1920s is embedded in the cellars and in the walls and in the plumbing and the things like that. And they've renovated everything repeatedly. But the house is on such a secure footing from what happened in the 1920s. And everybody who has lived there since has enjoyed it being as it is, as an old house. There's no modern kitchens, glassy passageways or anything like that, which is lovely if someone wants to do it. But in this particular house, it's just got its 17th century character with 18th century collections as well. And that's why the public go there. And one of the magic things that you'll see if you ever get an invitation is <laughs> um, you climb up the staircase. In most houses, the staircases get smaller as you go higher. But in an Elizabethan house of scale, you, as a sort of major feature, would get to the top floor and find a long gallery. There aren't so very many of these long galleries in houses still around England because subsequent generations modernised their houses more. But this house has its long gallery. I'm not sure how long it is, but it is the entire length of the building from one end to the other, up high, so in poor weather you could have a good old bit of exercise looking out at the landscape. But it's very interesting, this house. It's, it's sort of important on every floor, three floor floors of equal importance. It's different, that, to many houses. What a brilliant... Um advert for the house that's fantastic i think after this podcast james and emma are going to find themselves the most popular people at any drinks party they go to but the uh, the thing i must do because charlotte is she who must be obeyed i must get back to the subject we're talking about because it's a thing and i don't mean to say this pejoratively i think it's a great thing 
of that contemporary art is increasingly juxtaposed with beautiful antiques or an, an older setting. I mean, I think to a certain extent, Chatsworth, to a certain extent, led the way with the late Duke of Devonshire pioneering modern sculpture. And in fact, Houghton now does uh, great sculpture exhibitions, two or three a year. So is this something you've done before? Is that is this now something that's kind of set you down a road that you're going to do it in other historic houses? How did it all come about, your decision to do this? Well, we have done it in the past. I've worked a lot with um, Chatsworth and we've done various temporary installations there, as well as many of our artists' work is there in the family's collection these days. We've done um, displays in the past at the Arts and Crafts House Blackwell in the Lake District, which is open to the public, built just at the beginning of the 20th century. And we've also done things with Waddesdon, where artists have made objects that relate to those houses. This project at Parham is works of art made by artists during the pandemic year and people have really concentrated in a year where they haven't been rushing here there and elsewhere you know artists also have spent more time in their studios across the world we have works of art from australia from japan from korea from england uh, other parts of the british isles and european as well and we um, have these objects in the house because they're beautiful and because they're recently made by highly talented creative people. We have the work of one new artist whose work, steel work, has never been outside Japan before. And we have work of his master, his teacher, the silversmith, um, who taught him. So we've got this variety there, but they're there because they're just beautiful and fit in the house. Then they have no inherent original connection, but it works because, um, frankly, when you have an eye for locating things around a house. There are large spaces, small spaces. We find the right space for an object. Playing with colours, playing with textures. The amazing textile collection at Parham is something we've used as a backdrop here and there for objects which have textures in ceramics and silver, for instance, and in glass, and colour relationships uh, out of old master paintings. These are sort of plays, if you see what I mean. They aren't connected. They just sit really well together. So that's what we've really been doing, is introducing things which exist to a place which exists and it's sheer pleasure. Well I think you've got a fantastic eye Adrian because I've seen some some incredible photographs. There's, there's a couple I really love. There's one of an exquisite characteristically spiky Junko Mori botany succulent which is next to a really severe Elizabethan portrait and then there's a really big fat juicy feckin looking mother pumpkin by Kate Malone that you've placed in the greenhouse and I mean the, the artists must have just loved this didn't they I mean they must have hugely enjoyed seeing their work in these extraordinary locations because you're right what you've done with backdrops they've really enhanced the work and made them look even more sort of glorious well you are kind um, you've made me think i can't recall an artist saying take that piece out of there um, <laughs> ever in my career um this is awful where you've put it uh, if we do get a whinge from an artist it's only asking for more uh, more space more objects more you know, <laughs> but we have to balance things out for many of our artists we represent seven artists, um, their entire output. They're not all um, in this country, but everything comes to us. So we have to give them a lot of time and space. And also we really try and balance it for everybody. There's even, I think, the pieces of jewellery set out. Uh, we have an artist who makes jewellery in her own workshop, working on her own unique pieces. They're set out on a dressing table in one um, photograph because that's real life in a house. And we try to give space to things, but some of the objects are much bigger than others. So different spaces. Some are very robust and can go like that huge Cape Malone pumpkin in the greenhouse. It look, um, looks great there amongst other plants. Apart from Parham, 
what 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 has been your favorite house to do one of these exhibitions in oh well now i'm going to have to excuse whoever i leave out um, <laughs> <laughs> um We've only, well, it's a choice between Chatsworth and Waddesdon. Waddesdon being a Rothschild house in um, Buckinghamshire, part yes. of the National Trust. And there, I absolutely refused to have our displays inside the house. The house is amazing, has French 18th century masterpieces and other things throughout. We did our shows in the stables, which are magnificent and beautifully ready for exhibitions. Whereas at Chatsworth, when we've worked with them, those objects get slotted into rooms open to the public uh, in a very lavish and um, exciting way because the rooms are very large. But I think uh, if you're looking at a historic house where somebody presents it as a museum like the National Trust, you leave it alone. And if it's somewhere where people live, it's up to them and you go along with that family and enjoy what they want to do. And that's what we've tried to do at Parham is to make sure that the house looks good and feels good, which means also James and Emma, who lived there, uh, had to enjoy it. And we had a lot of fun doing that. Adrian, you've been an absolute delight and a joy to have on this podcast. And I think you've really, you've brought alive not only the wonder of the exhibition also, but the wonder of this house that I've never been invited to. So <laughs> any, anyone listening to this, I'm sure will be hightailing it down there. It sounds absolutely wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you both. I can't wait to go to Parham House. And can we just remind our listeners that you'll definitely need to book. All the details will be on our website as ever. Now, before we go this week, I just want to talk quickly about movies. I know cinemas are about to open, but if you feel like one last dose of some home viewing... I can recommend two exceptionally brilliant films. Now, neither of these is fun. The first is set in Beirut and the second is about the massacre in Srebrenica during the Bosnian War. Don't be put off. These two films are utterly extraordinary. The first, Capernaum, was made in 2018 and won the Cannes Jury Prize. It stars Zayn al-Rafia as a 12-year-old boy living a life of unimaginable stress and poverty. It sounds grim, but his performance is so phenomenally moving and the film is a real insight into a rarely seen side of the city. Now that's available on all four. And the other film is called Quo Vadis Aida. It was released earlier this year and it's now available on Curzon Cinema. And it's about a female translator trying to save her husband and two sons when the Serbs invade Srebrenica. It's absolutely harrowing. But again, the central performance by Jasna Djuricic, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, is so exceptional and illuminating. And as we come out of lockdown, it's just worth being reminded how incredibly lucky we are not to be living through a war. They're both just brilliant films. And if you're going out, there's all kinds of theatre to look forward to, from Ian McKellen playing Hamlet at the Theatre Royal in Windsor. He's obviously just old enough to do that now. <laughs> Rafe Fiennes touring with Elliot's The Four Quartets and A Midsummer Night's Dream at Shakespeare's Globe. And though it's hard to believe spring is here, I did go and see David Hockney's The Arrival of Spring at the Royal Academy yesterday, and it's uh, obviously absolutely fabulous show, and actually quite small, which is nice, so you can go in and out in about 10 minutes. Uh, but that's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with our Hay Festival special. Country and Townhouse is a media partner of the festival. Well, I never, I didn't know that. So we'll be talking to <laughs> the legendary literary agent Caroline Michelle, and to some of the festival authors, including the actor Russell Tovey and singer-songwriter Rob Diamant, about their new book, Talk Art, which uh, is the same name as their 
million download podcast forecast. And Ed will be chairing our annual Great British Brands panel at Hay on the 3rd of June at five o'clock, discussing how brands can help support and save our arts and culture. On the panel will be Neil Mendoza, of course, the Government Commissioner for Cultural Recovery and Renewal, Iwana Blaswick from the Whitechapel Gallery, Emma Rickett from Rolls-Royce, who'll be talking about their arts programme there, and Nina Plowman from Cultural Cons. So do tune into those, into that, to see Ed and our fabulous panel in action. I think you mean fabulous Ed and our panel in action. <laughs> Slightly mangled the sentence. Uh, you know that our website address is now countryandtownhouse.co.uk, where you'll also find our sister podcast, House Guests with Carol Annette, for all lovers of interior design. This week, she talks to the interior designer, Benji Lewis. You can also tune into our Great British Brands podcast with host Michael Heyman. And just add Flash Newsletter for both our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter and our May month of May Great British Brands newsletter. See you next week. Goodbye. Bye.